Well, I invite you this morning to take a copy of the scriptures, whether it's on your phone or your electronic device, or whether it's with your Bible that you brought with you today, or the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, this morning we are going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we continue this series entitled Faith in Uncertain Times. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, the verses will also be up on the screen as we uh, read this morning. So if you want to follow along with me as I read these 12 verses. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is, his, what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed from whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. May God bless the reading of his word to us this morning. I've entitled this message this morning, clearing up the concerns of the church. Now, it's amazing to me that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is writing to clear things up so that people will have an understanding that we find today that there are several concepts used in this passage that rather than clearing things up, seems to complicate things for so many people, and there are so many different views that take place concerning this passage. Now, in this passage of Scripture, 
Paul is going to talk about seven different things. And we're going to endeavor to cover all seven of them this morning. Now, let me say right at the start, these seven things, I could spend weeks on each and every one of them. But we're going to cover them in one week today. Now, I know that in doing so, it may poise questions for you. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? Uh, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you have questions as we're going along, uh, there's a card that's in the back of the pews, those response cards where we encourage you to put prayer requests or to let us know if you're new here. If you have questions, you can write them on those cards and drop them in the offering boxes in the back. Or this week, you can email me with questions. And if I get enough questions, I will do a podcast in seeking to deal with those questions. It may be more than one podcast, but if you have questions, feel free to either write them out or email them to the church this week, and I will endeavor to, to deal with them. But look at the things we're talking about in these 12 verses. The coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the rebellion, the man of lawlessness, the restrainer, the mystery of lawlessness, and the delusion. Now, one of the things that complicates so much our understanding of this passage of Scripture is because so many of us have a preset system in which we are understanding these terms within. When we are talking about last time, when we are talking about what we would call theologically eschatology, there's no shortage of views. There are plenty of them out there. Uh, for instance, I'm just going to name some of the popular ones that come into play with our understanding of this passage of Scripture. We have those that believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, meaning that Jesus is going to come back before a tribulation period. We have those who believe in a mid-tribulational rapture of the church. Those who believe in a post-tribulational rapture of the church. Then we have those who believe in a pre-wrath rapture of the, the church, which is a little bit different than the other views. Then we have those who are the partial preterists. They believe that all of this prophecy has everything except the final coming of Jesus to the earth, that that was all fulfilled in 70 AD. Then we have those who are full preterists that believe Jesus has already come back. He came back in 70 AD. He came back in judgment. Then as it becomes to the millennial, the millennium, we have those who believe in the premillennial rapture of the church, or the premillennial coming of Christ back to the earth to set up his literal thousand-year reign. Then we have those who believe in a post-millennial coming of Christ, that we're getting the world ready for Christ, and eventually he will come back and then rule over the earth. And then we have the amillennial view that says there is no thousand-year reign of Christ, that Christ is reigning right now. He is reigning in heaven, and he's reigning in his church and in our hearts. 
So do you see why there might be some confusion among Christians as we come to this passage of Scripture? Paul wrote to them to clear up confusion, and yet there is so much confusion on these things. Now, as I approach this passage of Scripture, I'm going to be very upfront and very honest with you how I'm approaching it. And I'm approaching it not preset, this is what I believe, and let me somehow jam this passage into what I believe. I'm going to share with you what I believe because I believe that in this passage and in other passages of Scripture, if you take a consistent, literal interpretation of the Scriptures, this would be where you would land. And as a church, we take a literal interpretation of the Scriptures, including prophetic uh, Scriptures. Uh, I happened to be in a church uh, yesterday, and whenever I'm in a church, I always like to pick up some of their literature to see things. And I saw their, their core values, and one of their core values was, we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. I thought, well, that, that's interesting, and if you would have seen some of their other core values, you would know that it flowed from that approach to the Scriptures. We take the Bible literally because we believe that's how it's supposed to be understood. Now, that doesn't mean we believe there are no symbols or figures of speech in the Bible, but I personally believe whenever we find them, it is very clear that they're there. And none of us should start with our system of theology and force it upon the Bible. We start with the Scriptures and from that develop our system of theology. And everything's not going to fit nice and easy and not be messy, but I still believe that is the right approach for us to take. So based on that, I'm telling you right up front, I believe and as a church, we believe in the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to help you understand what I believe is going to happen, I've put it in a little chart up here on the screen. Now, I know some people make fun of charts. They don't like prophetic charts. Personally, I find the charts can help me to understand and put things in a time frame. So I believe that right now we are living in the church age, and this age will end when Jesus comes back in the air, the rapture of the church takes place, and we are caught up to meet him in the air. Following the rapture of the church, there will be the signing of a peace treaty with the nation of Israel that will be a seven-year treaty that ushers in the period we know as the tribulation period that's talked about in Daniel chapter 9. It is seven years in length. It is divided into two parts, the three and a half years equally between the two parts of the tribulation period. At the end of the seven years of the tribulation period, Christ will come back to the earth with the armies of heaven and those of us who were caught up at the rapture will be with him when he comes back. He will set up a kingdom. 
a literal thousand-year kingdom where he will rule and reign. During that time, Satan will have been cast into the bottomless pit. At the end of the seven, or at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed and lead a final rebellion against God, and that will usher us in to the eternal state. That is what I believe will be your conclusion if you accept a literal interpretation of the scriptures, including all of the prophetic passages. Now, having said that, let's kind of walk through this passage, and I'm going to walk through it again verse by verse and attempt to deal with the various terms that we have there, right? The first thing we need to deal with is the coming of the Lord in verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now, there's actually two references in that very verse talking about Jesus' return. And they're actually talking about two different events. There is the our being gathered together with him, which is the rapture of the church, and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of when he comes to the earth. Uh, one Greek student has said the wording of verse 1 strongly suggests that there are two comings of Jesus. One coming is for his church, as clearly described back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the other concerning is with his church to judge a rebellious world. There are two parts to this one great event. The coming for the church in the air and the coming to the earth, this kingdom. And I would suggest to you, if you study throughout the scriptures, all the passages that relate to the rapture and relate to Jesus coming to the earth, all the passages that talk about the coming of the Lord that it is very, very difficult to combine them into one coming. The return of the Lord is in two different stages. And Paul is saying, now concerning this, I'm writing to you, and he says in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to have come from us. Now, why is Paul writing to them? This is his second epistle to the church in Thessalonica. It's written about nine months after the first letter to them. And he's writing back to them again because he's heard there's all kinds of confusion. People are upset. Uh, it's strong wording that's being talked about here. When he talks about being shaken in mind, it refers to you've had a sudden jolt. Or it signifies like being on a sea that is agitated in a storm. You are being shaken and you are troubled. And the word there is a constant state of being upset. 
Now, why would all this be? Well, Paul gives three possible reasons. He says, you're not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit. It could be someone who's saying, okay, this is what the Spirit has told me. Remember, at this point in time, they don't have the New Testament like we have. So God would speak through his spirit, through individuals. So someone has said, this is what's going to happen. Or a spoken word. Someone is standing up and saying, hey, this is what God has told me is going to happen. Or a letter seeming to be from us. Now, it appears that someone has written a letter to the church in Thessalonica and signed Paul's name to it. Uh, remember, in most of his letters, Paul dictates those letters and then signs them at the end. And many believe that's because of his thorn in the flesh, which was possibly bad eyesight after the Lord Jesus had appeared to him. So it is possible and very probable that someone's written a letter telling them things different than what Paul had told them. So now they're all upset because this letter came with Paul's name on it. So they're agitated. What's true? What's not true? And he goes on and he says this. He says, this has come to you to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That you're living in the day of the Lord. In other words, they're saying, the day of the Lord, which is a period of judge, concludes a period of judgment, has come upon you. So now we got to deal with this term, what is the day of the Lord? Because it's something that they understood that he had talked to them about. So what does the term, the day of the Lord, mean? Well, I think the best definition comes from Dwight Pentecost, who wrote a book entitled Things to Come, an excellent book on prophecy. And there he defines the day of the Lord as this. The day of the Lord is that extended period of time beginning with God's dealing with Israel after the rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation period, and extending through the second advent and the millennial age unto the creation of the new heavens and the new earth after the millennium. Now, let me sandwich that for you real quick. The day of the Lord is a prophetic term that begins after the rapture of the church and goes all the way to after the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. That whole period of time is referred to as the day of the Lord. But it begins with what occurring? The rapture of the church. Now, do you understand why those in Thessalonica might be a little concerned? Someone's told them the day of the Lord has already come. So that would mean they missed the rapture. Jesus came back and took all of his believers to heaven, and they're still here. 
Let me ask you a question. If suddenly three-quarters of this congregation just suddenly disappeared this morning and you were still sitting there in the pew, would that concern you a little bit? Would, would that shake you up just a little bit? Well, we can understand why they're shaken up. If the day of the Lord has already come, that means Jesus has come back and they have been left behind. So Paul says to them, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Okay, that brings us to another term to deal with, the rebellion. Paul's writing and said, I told you these things when I was with you, but remember, the day of the Lord is not coming unless you can see the rebellion, the apostasy. The great religious movement, a worldwide movement that is totally against what the Scriptures teach. Now, can you understand how that could happen after the rapture of the church? If all true believers are suddenly taken from the earth, what do we expect is going to happen? There's going to be the rebellion. So if the rebellion hasn't happened yet, then you can be sure that the day of the Lord has not begun. And then he goes on to say, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Okay, here's another term for us. Now we come to the man of lawlessness. Do you see very clearly, and please understand this, what does it say? The man, an individual the man of lawlessness. There's going to be a man of lawlessness. He is called other things in the Scripture. He's referred to as the Antichrist. And there's many other names that are applied to him. But he is an individual. There is a man of lawlessness. We'll talk about the spirit of lawlessness in a moment. But there is the man of lawlessness. And Paul says that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. This one who is the son of destruction, you will know who he is. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. This man is going to lift himself up above all religions, and against all acts of worship, so that he, once again, male pronoun, he is an individual, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Let that sink in for a second. He is going to go to the temple of God. That is a clear reference to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, some scoff and laugh at this statement because they would say, there is no temple in Jerusalem. 
Yeah, that's true today, but there will be. There will be. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so this man of lawlessness is going to sit in the temple and proclaim himself to be God. Then Paul goes on and says, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Paul says, what's the matter with you guys? I taught these things to you when I was there last time. Don't you remember them? Well, let's be a little easy on those in Thessalonica. Do you remember everything you were taught? I mean, I, I can tell you several years ago, we taught on this before. Don't you have it all down? Don't you know it? We, we, we told you. I told you these things. We talked about these things. So Paul is saying, just remember what I told you. And basically he's saying, I didn't write you some letter denying the things that I told you before. Remember the things I've told you. Verse 6. And you know what is restraining him. Now, now we've got to talk about the restrainer. There is something that is restraining. There is something that is holding back this lawless one, this man of sin, so that he may be revealed in his time. So Paul would say, if you were actually in the day of the Lord and living in the day of the Lord, there are two things that you would see. You would see the apostasy and you would see the identity of this man of wickedness. You can't see it right now because he's not evident. The day of the Lord has not begun. And that is because there's something that's restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. He won't be revealed until it's God's time for him to be revealed. For, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So, the mystery of lawlessness. We've talked about the man of lawlessness. Now we're seeing the mystery of lawlessness. And a mystery is something that's been hidden before but is now being revealed. The mystery of lawlessness, that he is being restrained, he is being held back now, but this lawlessness is working in our world already. It was working in Paul's time, and as I think of troubled times, we're certainly living in troubled times now. And I would say to you this morning that as an American, I have in my life, soon to be 70 years old, I have not seen a spirit of lawlessness as much in our faces as it is today. When that which is wrong is called right, and that which is right is called wrong, that's the spirit of lawlessness that is working in our world, and it is very much working today. We are still not in the day of the Lord yet, because 
the restrainer is still holding it back. Look at the second part of verse 7. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, what's interesting in this passage is you have uh, neutral pronouns referring to the restrainer, and you have a masculine pronoun referring to the restrainer. So the restrainer is a person, the Holy Spirit, I believe, who is holding back. You say, well, he's the Holy Spirit today, where does he operate within what realm? Well, it's true that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, but it's also true that the Holy Spirit is present in our hearts as believers, that he lives inside of us. So to me, it only makes sense that when the church is removed from the world, who's going with the church? The Spirit of God. See, we are called salt and light. What enables us to be salt and light? It's the Holy Spirit living inside of us and working through us. So I believe the restrainer is the Spirit of God who is holding back. Now, after the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit will still be present in the world by, by the fact that he's omnipresent, but he'll not be working in the way that he is working now. And imagine, my friends, as bad as things are in our world right now, what will it be like when the restrainer is removed? How much worse will it get? All right, I've got to hurry, so hang on with me. And he says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Paul tells us ultimately what's going to happen. He's going to be destroyed by Christ. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. The restrainer, the mystery of lawlessness. Jesus will ultimately destroy this man of wickedness. But make no mistake about it. He's carrying out, this man of wickedness is carrying out the will of Satan. And Satan is empowering him. And this individual during the day of the Lord, as he's here on the earth, he'll be doing signs and wonders and people will marvel at him and follow him. Paul then says in, that those who are following him will perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. I remember years ago sharing with an individual who said to me after I had taught on this passage of Scripture, he says he was coming to church regularly, he wasn't a believer in Jesus, his wife was, his family was, and he said to me, he says, Butch, I want you to know something. If this happens, 
If this rapture occurs and I'm left behind and you guys are all gone, my wife's gone, then I'll believe. Then I will believe. And I said to him, no, you won't. Notice what it goes on and says, verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. There's our last term, the delusion. And notice it's sent by God. So that they may believe what is false. Who is it that may believe this? Those who have rejected the truth. He says, in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So if you're sitting here today and say, well, if the rapture occurs, this occurs, then I'll put my faith and trust in Jesus. No, you won't. Because you understand what's going to happen. And God is going to send you a delusion so that you will not believe. And the world as a whole will not believe because they love their unrighteousness. Now let me wrap this up in two quick challenges for us. First of all, if you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ, now is the time for you to believe. Now is the time to put your faith and trust in Christ. I don't know what you're waiting on. I don't know how, what sin it is you enjoy so much that you are rejecting Jesus. But you need to put your faith and trust in him and follow him. And secondly, to us as believers, we don't need to be shaken. We don't need to be troubled. Look, if God is in control of all of this stuff, and he's always been in control of it, don't you think we can trust him with the stuff going on in our lives? Don't you think we can say, knowing what's going to happen, I don't need to be agitated. I don't need to be upset about these things. I don't need to sweat these little things because look at what God's going to do on the big realm. And he's sovereign and in control of it all. As we end this morning and dismiss, this is why every Sunday morning we end our services by saying good morning and Maranatha. The word Maranatha means, oh Lord, come. And when we end our services, we are saying, we believe Jesus is coming back. Maranatha. It's also a prayer that says, oh Lord, come. It's a prayer we're saying, come on back, Lord. Come on back and get your church. And that's our blessed hope that we are looking forward to. So this morning, good morning, and say it together with me. And... God bless you.